Well, good morning to all of you. Now, in my own defense, somebody said, I thought you said you weren't a morning person, but you said you're also a hunter. And uh, yes, I am a hunter, which means you have to be somewhat of a morning person, but you don't have to get ready. You don't have to brush your teeth. You don't have to shave. You know, that's the difference. So I am glad to be here in this beautiful part of the morning. And to open God's Word with you from Hebrews chapter 7, we've been taught very well by David Bowen, and I wish he had kept going, but uh, now it's my turn, and he has taken us through uh, the hardest parts of Hebrews, and Hebrews is the hardest book in the New Testament, the most theologically compact and, uh, and challenging But he has taken us through and given us a very good foundation by which we can come back to this topic of Melchizedek that we took up earlier in the book, left off with in chapter 5, while um, uh, the writer uh, addresses those who who are flagging in their faith. They're compromising. This actually, we have indication that this was one sermon. Uh, The book of Hebrews can be read at a normal pace in 50 minutes, which I take to be a God-ordained length for a sermon. (laughs) Uh, But uh, it was was indication that it was one sermon. And uh, the middle of the book is uh, apparently addressing those who are falling asleep in the sermon. He's talking about Melchizedek. They're getting a little droopy and they're flagging in their faith as well. And so he talks about the warnings... Uh, that uh, come to those who pretend to be Christians, but they're not putting, they're not uh, living uh, with Christ as the Lord of their lives. Well, he, he, David took us through that, those, cha- those challenging verses in the early part of chapter 6. And now we come back to Melchizedek because the overall topic is we have a better Savior than was ever uh, anticipated in the Old Testament. We have Jesus Christ, he's a better, he's a better sacrifice, and now we say he is a better priest, he's a better king, he is the perfect priest and king. So let's begin reading verse 1 of chapter 7, see what the Lord has for us this morning. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, 
but in another case by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he still was in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's insight into his word. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would fall on us with unmistakable power and glory and insight this morning. Thank you for the encouragement of these men who show up early in order to study your word and not just to study it, but to, not just to look at it, but to study it and to study it deeply. And we pray that you would not just open our minds and uh, fill our brains with new thoughts, but we especially pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cause these things to go down deep into our hearts that we might live them today, that we might live in the confidence that we have a perfect high priest and king, even Jesus Christ, and nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away all our sins and cause us to live this way in this dangerous world. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and God's people said together, amen. Now we're going to take up Melchizedek again next week, so uh, I don't expect to answer everything about of your questions about Melchizedek, and I might not be able to answer all your questions about Melchizedek, but I hope that you'll send me those questions or pass them on to me after we meet today that we might be able to address them uh, next week if we haven't talked about uh, those things that interest you this week. But Melchizedek, we have to understand from the very beginning, is, yes, he appears as a mysterious person in the Bible, and some people think that he is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, and he might be. But that is not the importance of the text. The importance of the Melchizedek event is that God created this illustration of the coming Christ in order to point his people forward to him and as an encouragement to us today. This is a God created illustration. When I was in uh, Augusta, there were a couple of businessmen in my congregation who became aware of a physician in Augusta whose practice, though it had been very, very successful, was now tanking. And this, uh, this doctor was rather proud of the fact that he was a moral atheist. That's what he called himself, a moral atheist. And he was a moral fellow. He was a he was a he was a, 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 a kind of guy you wanted to be around, but he made no uh, apology for the fact that he dismissed Christ, dismissed the existence of God. They had a burden for this man, and uh, when his business started tanking, they decided that they would buy his practice and keep him as the primary physician. Now it wasn't going to be a money maker for them. Uh, because <clears throat> there was too much competition in town. But they had such a burden for his soul, they said, let's do this as an opportunity for evangelism. Though so this man whose life was falling apart in every way materially, when they came in, they swooped in and they rescued his business. And when they were signing the final documents, after they signed the final documents, they leaned across and they said, now... 
say John is his name, it's not his real name. John, you may now, you may continue to dismiss Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but you'll never again be able to say that you don't know what the gospel is because you have now experienced it. Melchizedek is even more, that's an amazing story. That was an amazing act, it was an amazing act of sacrifice and service and, and redemptive uh, action. But this is even more amazing because God in this instant and in many instances throughout redemptive history moved, shaped history in order to say to his people, Christ is coming. The head, the, the, that, that uh, king who's going to crush the head of the serpent, he's coming, he's coming. Here's another picture. And I have crafted history in order to create that picture. And I've crafted a man in order to create that picture. This is what exegetical theologians call a typology. I don't know what's showing behind me. Oh, yeah. oh. so I'll get to that in a minute. A typology is a, a, it, a type is a promise in the Old Testament that's going to be fulfilled by Christ in the New Testament. So we talk about a type and an anti-type. You can't say anything simply in theology because you have to have these, these things. You have to say these things for job security. You have to say things that demand explanation. It would be too easy to say promise and fulfillment. You've got to say type and anti-type. So a type is a promise. The promise was Melchizedek. Here's an image of coming Christ. And the anti-type is Christ. So Melchizedek is a God-created illustration of the coming Christ. Now, I've probably gotten out of order. I'll go back to the, uh, the proposition. And what I'm trying to do in the way I teach you is to, I'm trying to expose the way I craft a sermon and the way I've taught people to preach uh, through the years. And I ask, we ask three questions of every test, of every text. What is God's, what is man's need for redemption in Christ? What is God's supply of redemption in Christ? And what is, God's, what is man's response? And the need I've just given you in the opening illustration, that is we have a need for redemption. And the supply and response is provided in the proposition. I'm, I'm, driving, the, I'm driving whoever's doing this crazy because I've never taught like this before. <clears throat> it's just... Uh, Go back to the proposition. Thank you. I'm sorry. Not used to this kind of accountability. So I'm sorry. <laughs> so our need, our need is for redemption, right? We need a Christ to redeem us. We need a Christ to redeem us materially, spiritually, emotionally. Here is God's supply as it comes in this text. It's expressed in the proposition. Keep going. There you go. Christ is our priest king. Because Christ is our priest king, we must live confidently. That's the proposition. 
Christ is our perfect priest king, and Melchizedek is the God-created illustration of a priest king. Christ is the perfect one, and our response to that provision of grace is that we live confidently in this world. Or as he says in chapter 6, verse 19, so that we live with a hope that passes behind the curtain. We live confidently in the presence of God, and we live confidently in the face of all opposing forces. So, how is Melchizedek presented as our perfect priest-king? Melchizedek is... was greater, that's where I am, number one, Melchizedek was a greater king, yeah, <laughs> keep going, I've already done all that, Melchizedek was a type of Christ, Melchizedek was a greater king, it's good, that's good enough. Melchizedek was a greater king than Abraham. Melchizedek, Abraham was great. The, the argument is this. Abraham was great. Melchizedek was greater. Christ was greater still. Now, how was Abraham great? Abraham was a great father. He was the father of Israel. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God gets the promise that you're going to be the father of many nations. And then we learn in the New Testament that uh, that was a promise not just to Jews, but he was going to be the father of, of, of Gentiles, and that the way he was going to become the father of Jews and Gentiles of many nations was through his seed, even Christ. So Abraham got that first promise. He was the father. We find that in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7. He's called, and uh, the second point is, in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, he is also the friend of God. He's a friend of God. He had an intimate relationship with God. It's a fascinating study. Abraham's life is fascinating study of the growth of his faith. He starts out not so great. Takes him a while to answer God's call. He gets bogged down with all of his stuff in Haran. And he gets called again. And he lies about his wife and so forth. And his faith grows. And, uh, but Abraham was a great friend of God. Great, Abraham was a great military hero. And we've got to understand that story in order to make sense of this text. Because this is a major illusion in this text. Uh, here it is in Genesis chapter 14. I'll rehearse it for you because it's not so familiar. Abram at the time had a nephew named Lot. Remember Lot? lived in Sodom. His wife turned to salt and that story and so forth. So <clears throat> Abram is trying to mind his own business over on the west side of, of the Jordan River. And he becomes aware that his nephew, Lot, had been taken captive on the east side. Uh, what happened was there were, there were uh, four kings way up north, Mesopotamian kings, who dominated five other kings on the east side of the Jordan River. It's not important to know what the names of those kings were or the, where they lived. or Just know four kings dominated five kings. And kings were, that's a relative term in those days, they were more like mayors. 
had little, little hamlets. And they would, they would pack together and they would take over other people. So it didn't matter how many people you had as long as you had more people than the other guy. And you were meaner than the other guy. And when you were badder and meaner than the other guy, you take him over and you make him pay tribute to you. That's what you do. So Genesis 14 says these five kings served these four kings. And by serving, they meant they paid tribute to them. They paid money. They paid taxes. Well, the five kings one day said, you know, we're tired of paying all these taxes to the four kings of the north. There are five of us, four of them. Let's go take them. And so they, they challenged them in war, and the four kings came down, and they just swept through them. They made a, they made a line. It's called the King's Highway. They went all the way down the east side of the Jordan River, and they, just, they, and they, they chased them across over across the river, and they came up to the valley of, of uh, Siddim, and, they, and they, they tore them up, drove them off. And the four kings fled all the way back up to the north. I mean, the five kings did. Four kings defeated five kings. That's what you need to remember. Four defeated five. But in the process, the four kings, led by a man named Kederleomar, took Lot captive, Abraham's nephew. Now, Abraham's probably thinking, I don't have a dog in that fight. I'm just going to sit here under the trees of Mamre and just mind my own business, let them do their own thing. But somebody escapes and they run over to Abraham. They said they've taken Lot. He goes, oh, so I've got to go get Lot. So one man, Abraham, takes 318 men, one man, 318 men, and he defeats the four kings who defeated five kings. So you get it? You don't have to know any about the history, east, west, anything else, but all of you can follow this. Four kings defeated five, and one defeated the four who defeated five. 318 men. It was a miracle. Abraham was a great military hero, empowered by God, yes, but he was great. He was a great father. He was a great friend of God. He's a great military hero. But Melchizedek was greater. And the, the uh, writer of Hebrews makes that point by saying Melchizedek is shown by this God-created illustration. Melchizedek is shown to be greater than Abraham, first of all, by the rarity of his appearance. Now, it's not that you know, it says he has no father or mother, no genealogy. It's not that he just popped up one day. He did have a mom and dad. We just don't have a record of it. And we don't have a record of it because God intended us not to have a record of it. We don't have many appearances from Melchizedek because God didn't want us to have more than one appearance of Melchizedek because he's making a point. Something that shows up rarely is worth a lot, right? That's why bitcoins are valuable, whatever in the world they are. Everybody's decided they got to have one because you can't find any, right? And a diamond is valuable because it's rare. So something that is mentioned as significant but rarely appears is valuable. Melchizedek appears on the scene. And he has 
They don't know where he came from. We don't have any speeches by him, not, not very long speeches. But Abraham, this great father, friend of God, and military hero, kneels before Melchizedek and pays him a tribute. Just like these five kings were paying tribute to the four kings because the four kings were greater militarily than the five, so now Abraham says, you are a greater king than I am. And he pays him this tribute. His rarity of appearance shows that he's great. His name indicates that he's great. Melchi means king. Melchi means king. Abram's name, what is Abram's name? Abram, A-B-R-A-M, before he received, before he was given the promise of Isaac, Abram's name literally meant dad. That was kind of, could have been kind of embarrassing for Abram because, you know, you go down to the, to the uh, city coffee shop and they, they say, you know, what, what's, what's your name? Abram, dad. Oh, tell us about your children. I don't have any. And then, and then God renames him Abraham, which means dad of a whole lot of people. And he goes down to the city coffee shop. Now what's your name? I changed my name. It's Abraham. Oh, what does that mean? Father of many nations. Wow. How many kids do you have? Well, I got one on the way. <laughs> now we know the significance of that. God takes insignificant things and makes them significant, greater than we could ever dream. God said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, but not in a way that you can ever anticipate. I'm going to make you the father, yes, of one son, and from that son you're going to have some others, and, it's going to, and, the, and the Jewish people are going to be numerous. But that's not great enough to be a promise for me. I'm going to make you the father of millions and millions and millions of people who embrace my son, your descendant, Jesus Christ, and when each one of them gets saved, they will become covenant fathers of others whom they will raise in the faith. And my church will grow and grow and grow and grow. Abraham had a great... Abram, when he met Melchizedek, had a, had a great name, Dad. But Melchizedek's name was King. King of Zadok, righteousness. He came from a place called Salem, which was probably the forerunner to Jerusalem, which means peace. So you put all that together, you have this. You have Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. I mean, what if I called myself king of righteousness? You'd follow me around, wouldn't you, with a camera saying, we're going to see just how righteous he is. Oh, he's the king of righteousness. I see the way he got frustrated at the gas station. I see... But king, king of righteousness was his name because he was the king of a city of peace where he obviously had exercised such influence that the city lived, the whole city lived in peace because the whole city was characterized by righteousness. A God-created illustration. Abraham was great. Melchizedek was even greater as a king, as exemplified by the rarity of his appearance, the name of his exalted role, and acknowledged by Abraham by the way he paid tribute to 
Melchizedek. Now, I want to say a word here. I don't want to get uh, too much into a rabbit hole, but I want to say a word here about these tithes. Abraham paid the tithe to Melchizedek. Now, a tithe, the 10% was a common practice among the pagans. Everybody recognized that, uh, that if you have a deity, you owe that deity 10%. That was what they were accustomed to giving. And if you were a servant of another king, the tribute price was 10%. 10% was a logical subdivision of your goods that you would pay recognizing that a deity or someone was greater than you. Now, some people look to this as a guide for biblical giving, and it is a, it is a minimal guide. And it seems to be a minimal guide recognized universally by, by humanity. Um, you know, the, all, all the guideline budgets have, what should you give to charity? 10%. A relative of mine, whom I won't name, a relative of mine who's not guided by any spiritual principles whatsoever, is uh, loves to give to the arts. And how does he figure out every year how much he's going to give to the arts? He gives 10%. He doesn't have any idea what tithing is in the Bible. He just knows that that's what his financial advisors say. That's what everybody, if you want to be basically generous, that's what you give. But some people look to this as the guide for biblical giving. And it's a, it's a good minimal guide. But the guide for biblical, biblical giving is greater, even greater than this. And I'm just making this point on this, on this, uh, on this text because so many people do, not because it's the central point of the passage. The central point of the passage is uh, Abraham paid a 10% a tribute to Melchizedek as, as something that was, that was universally practiced. When I recognize you're greater than I am, I'm going to give you a 10%. By the way, this isn't in your book, and there's no fill in the blanks on this. This is all uh, free of charge. <clears throat> but the biblical guide for giving is this. Remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet he became poor that you, by his poverty, might become rich. <clears throat> a biblical example of giving is the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, who gave beyond their ability. Their ability would have been 10%. But they gave beyond their ability and said they begged Paul for the privilege of giving. The Lord Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, uh, there's nothing to commend your faith. What do ye more than others? When you love those who love yourselves, what do ye more than others? In other words, the gospel is to make such a profound difference in your life that people say, that's not normal. Oh, he gives 10%. Oh, that's okay, that's normal. And we don't do it, but we all view it as normal. <clears throat> but, wow, that person is motivated by something more profound. And they don't carefully calculate how much they're going to give. They, just, they look for ways to give more. It'd be like this. It'd be like if we had a, a marriage seminar. 
and I said, okay, this marriage seminar is about the biblical practice of marriage. And the biblical practice of marriage is thou shalt not commit adultery. So that's the biblical standard for marriage. Don't commit adultery. Well, the pagans would come and say, well, we don't practice it, but we all agree that that's true. We don't, we don't, we, you shouldn't commit adultery. Now, a biblical conference on marriage would be, right, you shouldn't commit adultery. But in Christ, you have new power and new motivation to love your wife as Christ loved the church. What do ye more than others? Or if you had a, <clears throat> a biblical conference on um, friendship, and you say, okay, here, here's the biblical teaching on friendship. Love those who love you back. Well, we do that in the world. No, the biblical conference on friendship would be love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and lay down your life for those who are yet your enemies. That's the gospel. So uh, if you want to use 10% as a minimal guide, then you should because everybody in, seems to have that imprinted on their conscience anyway. But when you're living in in accordance with the gospel, you're asking not, how can I carefully calculate my income and take 10% out of it and give? And when I get more, then I keep more and I give, still give 10%. As opposed to saying, how can I give more? In response to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, how can I live simp more simply in order to give more? In response to the Lord Jesus Christ, I've been given a raise. This gives me an opportunity to give more. You see the difference? Not denying tithing, but saying the Bible, the gospel, gives us the freedom to give hilariously and generously. It's proven in Abraham's life. Abraham starts with giving a tribute of 10%. When God keeps crafting his faith, by chapter 22, God says, Abraham, give me your son. And he says, of course. And he gives it so freely to say, I trust God now so much that I know even if I give my son, he'll give me what I need. He'll raise him from the dead. That's the way we give. That's the way we give our lives. Oh, I gotta, I gotta keep back ninety percent for myself. I gotta be very careful here. I gotta watch it. Up. I can live with a sort, a sort of recklessness. That the Lord Jesus will provide more than what I need. He delights in astounding the world by making us generous in a way that is counterintuitive to the world. So Abraham gave this tribute. He represents, he's, uh, he, is, he recognizes Melchizedek to be a greater king. Now, number two, I have more fill in the blanks now. Back to your page. Melchizedek was a greater priest than Abraham. Abraham was a great priest. He was the father of the Levitical family. He was the father of the priesthood. Aaron descended from him. Aaron became the father of the priesthood. You can see that in Exodus chapter 28, verses 41 to 43. 
He was the founder of the tax system of the theocracy. So God had a way of making, you know, theocracy means that, that you don't have a, a, a literal king you ha- or a, a human king. You have, a, you have God directly as your king. And that's the way Israel lived for many years. And you, if you're going to have a kingdom, you've got to have some method of taking, taking up taxes. And that's what the, the Levites, the Levitical priesthood was for. They took up these taxes or tithes, and there were at least three of them, totaling 23%. There's a tithe for the, for, the, uh, for the festivals, and there was a tithe for the priests, and there was a tithe for the temple, or tithe for the poor. He was, so Abraham was a great priest, but Melchizedek was greater. Melchizedek was a greater priest. He was a priest not by descendancy, not by lineage. You see, these these Aaronic priests, these Levitical priests, had to prove their heritage, their pedigree. They had to take their birth papers uh, to the central priest office and say, here, I have a right to be a priest because I can prove my, I'm a descendant of Aaron. But Melchizedek has no, has no lineage that's recorded. No mention of his father or mother. He is a priest by the order of God. He is a priest because God said, you're going to be a priest. Well, again, it's a God-created illustration. God said, I'm going to make you a priest. I'm not going to record your lineage. I'm going to make you a priest by my direct order because I am preparing my people for a priest who is going to come, Jesus Christ, who is not descended from Aaron either, not descended from an earthly father. He is a priest because I've said he's going to be a priest. He's a priest by the order of God. Melchizedek was greater, a greater priest than Abraham because he collected from the collectors. We've already made that point. So what does this all mean for us? How does it apply to us? What's the point that the, that the writer of Hebrews is heading toward? Now he's going to make it especially in verses 11 and following, but we're going to jump ahead because we can't leave without the gospel this morning. Jesus, Melchizedek, was preparing us for Jesus Christ who is the perfect priest-king. He is everything that we need. In the Levitical priesthood under the law, under the law of Moses, no one was permitted to be a king and a priest. Remember, Saul got in big trouble for that. But here, before the Mosaic law, is a king-priest. Then it goes away. We don't see another one. We don't see another king-priest until Jesus arrives. So it's no doubt this is our our Savior. He's the one promised to us long before. And He is the one we exactly need. Think about the imperfections in Melchizedek's kingship. We we said he's greater than Abraham, but he, he wasn't perfect. He was limited. He was limited in the peace he could provide. Would you call Jerusalem a city of peace today? (laughs) He's limited in the peace he could provide. His peace was provincial. It was in a local place at a very, and, and was external. 
He kept, he kept sin tamped down. It was temporal. It passed away. So he was limited in the peace he could provide. The righteousness he provided was only relative. Uh, it, was, it was righteous compared as, as compared to other nations. By comparison, Salem was a righteous place. It was, he, he provided a righteousness as viewed from the outside. It, it looked like a righteous place, but inside their hearts were still unchanged. It's a righteousness as defined by the letter of the law. Okay, people, maybe they didn't swap wives a lot, but did they look on women as to lust after them? Okay, maybe they didn't kill each other, but did they curse one another? They kept the letter of the law, but not the weightier matters of the law. It was a relative righteousness. There were imperfections in his priesthood, too. Imperfections in his, in his priesthood. <clears throat> it was only imitative of heaven. Chapter 8, verse 5 talks about the altar that, that the Old Testament priest uh, offered sacrifices on being a figure of that which is in heaven. There is a literal altar of some kind in heaven that has been perfectly covered with the blood of Christ and there is no other sacrifice yet to be made. He never finished his work. Melchizedek never finished his work of priesthood. The priests in the Old Testament never finished theirs. There's one piece of furniture you'll never find in any description of the Old Testament temple. It's a chair. You never find a chair described in the Old Testament temple. Why? Because the priests never sat down. They're constantly slitting the throats of animals, constantly pouring out blood. They never were finished. That's why it's significant. When Jesus offered his sacrifice for us, he sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus has washed away our sins. What can bring perfect peace, not just externally, not just the semblance of it, but bring peace inside forever, only the peace of the gospel? That is our king. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, greater priest and greater king, but he wasn't what we needed. We need a priest who can once and for all satisfy our sins. And he has done it. We need a king who can bring us peace in our conscience and someday bring peace once and for all by conquering all kings and all nations and bringing them in submission under his feet. And that is the king and priest that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, it, takes a long, it took a long time to make that point, but I'm just teaching the text. I'm just teaching the history of God's redemption, where God took all of those many, many years to make the point very loudly that I have brought you finally the perfect king and priest. Here are all the imperfections. And here is the one king and priest who can answer your every need. I read a story many years ago. It may be one of those preacher stories, but 
it's a, that's not true, but it's a good one. <clears throat> and um, there's some indication that this, this kind of thing happened historically. But the story is told about a Union soldier whose father and brothers were killed in the war. And uh, his mother wrote him and said, it's harvest time and I need you to come home and help me. And uh, so he went to his commanding officer and asked for a discharge and he said, That's, uh, I can't do that. You've got to go, you've got to, go to D.C. and ask. You've got to ask the big man for discharge papers. So he went to the steps of the White House and asked for entrance and the guard said, you know, go back and go back and fight the battle. I mean, how many people want to be discharged? If I start giving them to you, it'd be no end. He's totally dejected. He's walking along the streets. He saw a little boy. He saw how the little boy saw how sad he was and, and the, he said, what's the matter, mister? And he thought, what do I have to lose? And he told him his problem. And uh, the little boy said, I think I can help. And he took him by the hand and he went to, back to the White House and he went up the stairs and passed the guard and walked into the president's office. And the president, Abraham Lincoln, said, what do you need, Todd? And Todd said, holding the soldier's hand, he needs to go home and tend to his mother's business. And the story is he got his discharge papers. Whether it's true or not, it's a great image, isn't it? But that's what Christ has done for us and does for us every day. Gives us a hope that goes behind the curtain. He takes us by the hand, takes us not just by the hand, he envelops us in his life. But when we take him as Lord and Savior, he envelops us, he unites us to himself and this perfect king, almighty king, this perfect priest takes us into the very presence of God and says, Father, give this one everything you have given to me. What are you afraid of today? What would you do today if you could live without fear and live in perfect confidence? Well, then do it because you have everything you need in Jesus Christ. Because he is our king priest, we must live confidently.